Well, not only does Ryan sing and write his own music, he makes the videos, and that one reminds me of an elevator. Anyone else? I'm just saying, hey, great to see you, and a special shout out to those of you joining us online, especially the one of you who sent me an email sharing your internal struggle with physically returning to church, not so much because of the virus, but because you find me significantly more interesting while you listen, enjoying a mimosa. I wasn't sure how to respond, and I'm still not, okay? But whether you get to enjoy an adult beverage during the talk or not, I am so glad to have you along for the ride. So uh, today, we get to begin a new three-part series specifically engineered to make you a bit uncomfortable and hopefully better for it. Uh, it's called The Perfect Blend, and it represents my attempt to speak into the tension found at the intersection of religion and politics in our world today. Uh, it's a conversation that really couldn't be any more relevant for us right now because, as you may be aware, in a few short weeks, we have an election scheduled. Uh, now, now, full disclosure, this is a really unusual series for me. I've generally shied away from talking about politics in church, especially in a church like Keystone, where I know political opinions vary greatly. But, but here's the thing. Um, I spend an inordinate amount of time studying Jesus and studying his teachings. And when something Jesus says specifically intersects with what we're experiencing as a nation, I would feel a bit negligent if I didn't explore that tension with you. Now, I think I first became aware of just how much political diversity exists in the church immediately following the 2016 election. Anybody remember that one? Uh, my wife and I are not huge political people, so we didn't stay up to watch all the election results roll in. And so I wasn't sure what to expect that next morning. But, but after waking up, I grabbed my phone and I checked my inbox and I found an email from a Christian friend who was writing me to celebrate what he described as, and this is a quote, check this out. He said, if you could look at that, the unexpected blessing God has showered upon our land. So if you wonder where he stands on the 2016 election, there you have it, right? Uh, but what was fun was the next email I received was from the seminary where I was enrolled at the time, informing me that classes for the rest of the week would be canceled so that students, and another quote here, process what had happened. <laughs> Seminary is graduate school for pastors. And I'm like, what is going on? I mean, apparently at the seminary, more than a few students thought the election was an unspeakable tragedy and it threatened to boycott their classes in seminary. You can't make that up. <laughs> then there was a Sunday immediately following the election and we gathered as we always do, unless there's a pandemic, right? Um, and I remember that Sunday very, very well because there were two distinct groups of people who walked into Keystone. One group could not have been more thrilled with the outcome of the vote, and they showed up early. And they were highly caffeinated. And they offered high fives and hugs to strangers and friends, right? Uh, and the other group was, I was struggling to describe it, I would say stunned and horrified. <laughs> to them, the world as they knew it had come to an end, and their hopes and dreams for the future had been dashed. I mean, and that was 2016. And to be honest, things have not become less divisive since then. Have you noticed anybody, right? It's like more than ever, my Facebook feed is filled with Christians on both sides, posting and commenting and even scolding people who don't hold political opinions that are the same as their own. 
In fact, our nation is currently experiencing uh, more political division than at any other time I can remember, which at least for me raises a really interesting and important question. I I mean, as followers of Jesus, what are we supposed to do with all this? How would Jesus encourage us to navigate this rather unique cultural moment? Well, well, this series, the next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to answer that question. And just to put you at ease, I'm not going to suggest that you change political parties. (gasps) Right? Instead, I want to suggest that we really should think about all of this differently because of our faith in Jesus. These next few talks will revolve around a really thought-provoking question that goes like this. Are you willing, and am I willing, to evaluate our politics through the filter of faith rather than create a version of faith that supports our politics? Are we willing to evaluate our politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports our politics? And it's a great question because honestly, adjusting faith to fit our political preferences is something most people do without even realizing it. And this explains how, in the United States, Jesus is a part of the platform of every political party. Have you noticed, right? Uh, Because here's why. If you start with politics and then go to those first accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, uh, you can find something Jesus said to someone that can be used to support your political view, whatever your political view happens to be. And so the real issue for us to consider is whether we're willing to put our political filter behind our faith filter instead of in front of it. Are we willing to follow Jesus even when following Jesus creates some space between us and our preferred political party? And historically, Christians haven't been able to do that very well, especially in seasons when culture becomes so divided. Now, here's what I find absolutely fascinating. Jesus actually saw this division in the church coming. In in fact, after he had one last meal with his first disciples, he prayed a very interesting prayer that has everything to do with our current situation. And it was interesting for two reasons. One, uh, because the prayer that was offered 2,000 years ago, in this prayer, Jesus actually prays for us in Ada, Michigan today, and I'll show you what I mean And two, in this prayer, Jesus himself actually makes a prayer request, which I think is just awesome. Uh, Now, if you grew up in church like I did, you already know what a prayer request is. But if not, let me kind of acclimate you. It's when you're about to finish a Sunday school class or your small group and you kind of gather everybody together and the leader or the teacher asks if anyone needs prayer for anything. And then somebody raises their hand and tells a group something that they would like prayer for. Maybe an aunt who's in the hospital awaiting some test results or a parent who lost their job or a sister desperately in need of a date for homecoming, you know, important stuff that needs prayer. Anything that's on someone's heart can be a prayer request. But in this prayer, Jesus, like God's one and only son, made a prayer request, and he prays for us. John tells us in his account that Jesus began his prayer this way. He said, Father, Uh, speaking of his heavenly father and our heavenly father, the hour has come. He's coming to the end of his life. Uh, There's some bad stuff right around the corner. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In other words, God, with, with what's about to happen, shine your light through me in such a way that people recognize who I am and that you and I are connected. Uh, The interesting thing to remember is that the hours Jesus was about to experience would be among the most horrific hours imaginable. Horrific 
yet also unspeakably beautiful because in those hours he was going to redeem humankind from the curses of sin and death. So in this moment, Jesus is fully aware what he was facing. The hour has come, he prays. Nonetheless, he prays, basically, I know that the hour of my sacrifice has arrived, but before all that gets started, I need to make a request. And here's what Jesus asks for. He prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, speaking of his disciples, are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. God, protect them. And, and so essentially, Jesus prays that God would protect them. But, but that's interesting. Once you remember that Jesus has already told his disciples that they would eventually be arrested, flogged, beaten, and probably killed for their faith in him. So apparently, Jesus isn't praying for their physical protection. He's actually praying for something he believes to be more important than their physical protection. You say, what in the world could be more important than their physical protection? Well, he prays that God protects them so that they may be one, as we are one. It's like, it's so important we don't miss this. At the end of Jesus' life, the thing he was most concerned about for his followers was their unity. And this prayer wasn't just for the 12 disciples sitting around the table. We already hinted at that. We know this because a few verses later, John records that Jesus prayed, my prayer is not only for them alone, like those first 12 that are sitting around the table. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's like you and me 2,000 years later, that all of them, Maybe one. And now here's why I think that matters to you and me. I don't think any of us probably have ever prayed what Jesus prayed for, even though unity was so important to Jesus, so critical as his life was coming to an end. And I can't help wonder that, that if a bunch of us had, maybe our world would be a different and better place because unity in the church really is that powerful well, here's, here's something to think about. In the first century, all sorts of people crossed the line of faith in Jesus. I made a list for you. Uh, Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, rich and poor, slave and free, educated and uneducated. And we know this because of those letters written by the Apostle Paul to early groups of Christians. And they had tension because of the diversity that was included in that first Christian community. And now pull it forward to the 21st century, and all sorts of people have crossed the line of faith in Jesus as well. I made another list. Uh, Republican and Democrat, independent and indecisive, mm. libertarian and librarian. <laughs> it's fun to make sure you're paying attention. Red, yellow, black, and white, like the song, Jesus Loves All of Us. Privileged and underprivileged, married and single. So from the very beginning, incredible diversity of perspective and opinion and background and even worldview was reflected in the church. And nonetheless, Jesus prayed that all people who came to believe in him, no matter where they were from, what they had experienced, would somehow be one which sounds impossible. But to Jesus, it was mission critical. All that to say we should be as intentional as we can be, as individuals and as a community, about ensuring that we demonstrate oneness so that we can help people understand the power and potential of Jesus' message. And because that's what Jesus prayed for. But as you already have experienced and know, well, unity is not easy. 
And it doesn't come naturally for any of us uh, because we know what we know and we were raised with what we were raised with and we've experienced what we've experienced. And so instead of pursuing unity, what's honestly our tendency is to run to our corners politically and in just about every other area of our life. And of course, the problem is if we do that long enough, we become entrenched in our thinking and, and lose the ability to really hear the other perspective. And Jesus knew all that. And nonetheless, he prayed He asked God for unity amid the inevitable diversity of his followers. And then as he continues to pray, he actually tips his hand as to why unity in the church is such a big deal. He prays to God that his followers would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Uh, Apparently, the reason that Jesus wants his followers to be one has very little to do with us. He prayed for oneness because of what he wants to do through us. It's like, think about it. There can be a lack of unity in a local church, and the local church can still survive. But if there's a lack of unity in the local church, it harms that church's ability to impact the lives of the people who aren't yet in that church. It's like they're driving by, and they've heard stories about the disunity in that community, and they think, well, this Jesus thing, there's nothing to it. There can't be anything to it. And Jesus knew that when people of outside of faith see the unity in spite of diversity within the church, they may actually become curious enough to investigate and maybe even come to believe that there is something to the message of Jesus, that he was sent by God to show us a better way to do life. But again, Jesus knew that if his disciples got divided, his movement would lose the very thing that he intended to make it so compelling to those on the outside looking in. That's why, according to Jesus, unity in the church, it, it isn't optional. It's imperative. It's, it's essential. And when church people can work together, even on issues on which we agree to disagree, and yet we press forward anyway, it's, it's captivating because that's not how life normally works. And that's why, according to Jesus, unity was the way forward for his church, and it worked. Unity amid diversity was the thing that eventually captured the attention of the Roman Empire and eventually the world. There had never been anything like it, and there really hasn't been anything like it since. Now, all that sounds great, and I I know what I would be thinking if I were sitting listening to someone say this. um, I'd have a question. It's like, okay, I can understand that Jesus was crystal clear on the necessity of unity, and I also can see that Jesus knew that his followers would carry incredibly diverse opinions uh, about how things should be done in church and in life. So the question, it's like, how exactly can there be unity amid diversity? I mean, it sounds good. It's a great name for a talk, which is, by the way, the name for the talk, Unity Amid Diversity. I'm pretty proud of that. It's a great name. But how can people who disagree politically still move forward as one organizationally? How is that even possible? And actually, there is an answer to that question found in those accounts of Jesus' life. And to show you what it is, I need to show you another, the other time Jesus connects the behavior of his first followers to their ability to influence their world. And the setting, and if you've been around here at all, this is not going to shock you, is the Last Supper that Jesus held with his first followers. Because during that meal, Jesus looked up and gave his disciples a new imperative. He phrased it this way. He said, a new command, I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. In other words, you're to leverage the sort of love that I've modeled for you. And it was a different sort of love. It was a self-sacrificing love. And Jesus would say, you're not simply to do it because it will help you get along better with each other, even though that will be the case. The reason I want you to leverage this unique kind of love is for the sake of the world. It's that the world may know. Jesus phrases it this way. He says, by this, by this love that, that upends expectations, revolutionizes relationships, can even change the world, everybody will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's like in this passage, Jesus identifies sacrificial love as the only thing that makes unity amid diversity possible. We have to lead with love, which brings us back to the prayer. As he continues, Jesus prays, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And Jesus says, you know, complete unity. And just to be clear, he isn't praying that his followers would be unified politically. Rather, he prays that they would embrace a unity of purpose, a unity of mission, a unity that allows us to see other people the way God sees them, a a God so loved the world sort of unity. And Jesus continues, if they do this, he says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus knew that his followers were going to disagree about all sorts of things. I mean, historically, Christians in community with one another have had long board meetings and long member meetings about all sorts of really critical things, including politics and culture and how to do baptism and what songs to sing. And then this one just really almost divided lots of communities. Drums in church. Can you imagine? I mean, that ship has sailed around here, but still, I have pastor friends that are negotiating that. Um, But see, Jesus also knew that if his followers gathered around the core of his message to love like he loved, to serve like he served, there would emerge a captivating unity amid all the diversity. And and here's the cool thing. After the resurrection of Jesus, it happened. Despite all that divided them, those first disciples hit the streets of Jerusalem with a common mission. They were to make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded you. Teach them to walk like Jesus walked. And you say, well, how would you describe the way Jesus walked? He loved before anything else. Love was his priority, a sacrificial love. Which brings us back to our current radically divided cultural moment and the question, how would Jesus want us to function in it? And and here's how I think he would encourage us. I think Jesus would say something like this. Listen, your preferred presidential candidate will either win or lose you know, that's not really a God insight. That's just how it goes, right? Uh, Based on how every American citizen over the age of 17 votes on November 3rd. But the church, the church will win or lose based on how each of us behaves every single day between now and then. The church will win or lose based on how we treat one another and how we treat those who don't know Jesus yet, both in person and online, right? Every single day between now and then. And that's why I'm convinced we must not allow anything or anyone to compromise 
our unity because when we compromise our unity, we compromise our witness to the world. The fact that we're here in part to demonstrate what following Jesus really looks like. And to follow Jesus, again, means we lead with love. And one more thing, just as kind of a PS, and we're going to investigate this a little bit more next week, but it was the central message of Christianity that shaped Western civilization. It wasn't politics directly, and it was the teaching of Jesus and not of our political parties that lay the groundwork for our modern sense of justice and fairness and the dignity of every single individual. A Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or Independent, that is something I think we can all get behind. Now, what I wanted to do is give you a little bit of homework this week that is specifically engineered to make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Are you ready? You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but it's a challenge. Some of you are like, bring it on. I understand, right? Um, Here's what I want you to do. I would encourage you to look for an opportunity this week to unconditionally love somebody with whom you disagree politically. Right? What would, and create, be creative, right? But, but here's why I want you to do that. Um, if you do, I think you'll begin to see the incredible genius behind the teachings of Jesus. Because to love somebody unconditionally that you disagree with politically and maybe vehemently um, will really unlock some potential to reframe the way you see them and unlock potential for unity amid diversity. So, in summary, followers of, Je- followers of Jesus may disagree politically, but we must love unconditionally. So, all right, once again this week, I wanted to leave you with a few questions to discuss over lunch or in your big idea groups. Um, as I say each week, discussion is a great way to move this content from concept to reality, from your head into your life. Um, and so, three questions once again today. The first question goes like this, just kind of get you thinking. What percentage of your friends and family share your political views? And some of you are like, all of them, because if they don't, whoop-a-chop. Right? Yeah, I understand. I got it, right? But just maybe just take an honest look. Like if you're, if you're somebody who's in the middle, you might have people on both sides. If you're somebody who's maybe farther to one edge or the other, you're like, yeah, I mean, there you go. So second question goes like this. Have you ever been guilty of adjusting your faith in order to support your politics? And again, this is common. So don't feel like if you do it, you're the first one ever. It's, it's been going on for thousands of years. Um, what made you realize that you were doing so? Like, what was it for you? Was it something you read? Was it a conversation you had? Um, But have you ever been guilty of adjusting your faith in order to support your politics? And then one more question. um, What are some practical steps you could take to help maintain unity within the diversity of our church? And again, that'll take a little creative thinking, but I know that you can do it. And so uh, we'll start there. We'll continue the conversation next week. I'd like to invite you in the room to stand and online. Please stay tuned and we'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the absolutely beautiful dream that you have for the church, that you have for our community, that that despite our different backgrounds, our different preferences, different worldviews even, that, that we would come together around the teachings of your son, that we would be a group that could love the way he loved and served like he served, even as we carry different opinions with us into those initiatives. I pray that you would give us some time this week to reflect on our political opinions and, and the teachings of your son, 
maybe encourage us to put our faith filter in front of our political filter if those have gotten out of order. But we thank you for loving us in spite of us. We thank you for sending Jesus among us as light in darkness and inviting us to follow. We are gathered 2,000 years later because of him and in his honor. And so we bless you and we celebrate you for the greatest gift ever given. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. As you leave, please just be cautious with social distancing. Uh, maybe hang out in here for a couple minutes, let people on the sides go first. But we'll see you back here next week.